Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from a serial entrepreneur who is obsessed with the power of technology to enhance human communication. In all four cases, both the failed games, Flickr, Slack, it goes right back to 1992. So the idea of just a network and the creation of an identity and relationships between people and the use of computing technology to facilitate that human interaction. That was Stuart Butterfield, co-founder and chief executive of San Francisco-based Slack. I caught up with him when he was in London recently to talk about the future plans for his company. Welcome to London, Stuart. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Now, for those very few Tectonic listeners who have never used Slack, can you explain what it does? It is a dangerous question. So we're close to five years into this, and we still have a little bit of trouble explaining it. I had this experience last summer where I was at a dinner, and there's a bunch of executives there, and I was seated next to the CEO of a French beverage conglomerate who asked me what Slack was, hadn't heard of it. And it was three or four minutes into the explanation, and his eyes had glazed over when someone from across the table who, who actually used it leaned over and said, it replaces email inside your company. And the person I was talking to said, oh, okay, so I should probably start there. But there's two senses of that. One sense is obvious. So people use email for communication when they have something to say to someone else. And Slack is better than email for internal communication because the messages move from being individually addressed to one person or a handful of people to what we call channels. And the channels tend to be accessible across the whole organization, but they can be as accessible as you'd like them to be. The difference is when someone joins a project later or when someone wasn't explicitly CC'd or addressed in a message, they still have a chance to go look and that there's a massive increase in transparency across the organization as a result. But the second sense and probably more subtle is email as a platform and email is the kind of go-to platform for enterprise software developers who want to bring something to a human being's attention. So for any listeners, you can think of all of the system generated email messages that you get. So anything that was composed and sent by a computer rather than a human. And inside of large enterprises, there's an enormous number of those. So you have to approve someone's expense report or a purchase order, job title change. And also inside many companies, the way that you get something done is to send an email to a special address or to a distribution list. And email has the virtue of being lowest common denominator. So I think that is a good thing. Anyone can run an email server, anyone can build an email client, anyone can participate in this global network. But that same virtue becomes a limitation in how people use it because the programmability or the customization of email messages is relatively limited, whereas Slack was designed from the ground up to be very customized. Right. And in what measurable ways does Slack increase productivity of those workers? Well, productivity of knowledge workers is notoriously difficult Hmm. to measure. Um, I actually had a great conversation with um, CIO of a large American bank recently. Historically, people have tried to evaluate the productivity of software developers by a bunch of objective outputs. So they look at lines of code written, which once you start measuring it, immediately causes a stylistic change in how people code things to produce many more lines, where you measure the number of bugs that they close, which causes a behavioral change whereby they create bugs for any task they're going to complete. Employee engagement turns out to be a relatively good one because people like to be productive. So if you ask them how well they like their job and they're positive, then that's probably a good indicator of their productivity. So we rely principally on those kinds of survey results. And we also just ask people, how much more productive is your team after you began using Slack? So we did a fairly large survey, but 
1,600, 1,700 responses. And the weighted average of the responses was 32%. So I'm not going to claim a 32% increase in productivity because that would be about two decades worth of accumulated productivity gains. But there's certainly a subjective impression. And I, I think probably one of the most important things is you tend to think in terms of per worker productivity. So the econometric definition is economic output per hour of effort. But if you're a manager, uh, and I mean, you were just a regular person observing, the difference in performance between the best and the worst performing individuals is so big, and I'm now going to hold my hands about six inches apart, but the difference in output between the best and the worst performing teams is much, much larger, so I'll hold my hands four feet apart. That is very difficult to capture in any kind of real objective measure other than asking people, but I think it's subjectively quite obvious. People have been on worse performing teams and better performing teams. And in the worst case, it's not just that there's no output. Sometimes it can be value destructive inside of a, like a really dysfunctional team can be value destructive inside of an organization. Okay. Now you have, I think, the most fascinating background of any communications executive I've met hmm. in that until the age of three, I believe that you lived in a remote log cabin in rural Canada and you were named Dharma. That is correct. Not that you have much say in this, but how did that all come about? Oh, well, I was born in 1973. My parents were married in 1970. My father was an American who, because of Vietnam, moved to Canada and met my mother in Montreal. And they were hippies and moved out west. And it's actually, it's, it's funny. My mother is of mixed Romanian and Polish Jew descent. Her father came from Poland between the wars. And he came to visit when I was two or three years old. And we lived in a log cabin, no running water, no electricity. There's a bathtub out in the yard. And he said, I escaped the shtetl in Poland to give you a life and send you to college. And then this is how you end up. You're back as a peasant. But it didn't last that long because my father's from New York and my mother's from Montreal, and they really had no idea what they were doing, trying to live off the land. There's a lot of specialty labor that goes into farming. And when I was five, I moved to the city, which was Victoria, British Columbia. Right. And Stuart, when does that come about? When I was 12. And uh, I mean, maybe it's more normal in the UK, but for some reason I had the impression that Stuart was a very normal name. And when you're 12, you want to be normal. Dharma's definitely not a normal name. And you ended up studying philosophy in Canada and then in Cambridge and then discovered the internet. So what was it that appealed to you about this kind of new business that was emerging? Well, when I first got online, it was 1992 when I first arrived at university and there wasn't any commerce on the internet at that time. There wasn't, the web hadn't quite taken off yet. So just the idea, well, what had become the reality, I guess, of this sci-fi notion of instantaneous transmission of thought from point to point, transcending geography and transcending time zone, is really powerful for me. And I remember in 1993, the first time I ever had a crush on someone who I'd never met, just, you know, it's black screen with a green text on it, and that's all the signal that you get. But you had real relationships with people, real interactions, and there was, you know, academic collaborations happening. And over the next five or seven years, and from 92, 93 to 99, 2000, you could just see the momentum to transform the world. And we're still living through that. And you built and then sold a very successful company, Flickr, the photo sharing app, mm-hmm. uh, which you sold for about 25 million to Yahoo in 2005. Is that right? Yeah. And... Out of that, you founded a video games company, mm-hmm. which I believe you pivoted into what has now become Slack. So yeah. How, how did that come about? Well, the company that predated Flickr, that ended up making Flickr, was also founded to build a web-based massively multiplayer game. And in all four cases, both the failed games, Flickr, Slack, 
it goes right back to 1992. So the idea of just a network and the creation of an identity and relationships between people and the use of computing technology to facilitate that human interaction. So Flickr was very much like massively multiplayer photo sharing. People could put their photos up and anyone could interact with them. Anyone could comment, form groups, tag them. And that was pretty unique at the time. Slack is something like massively multiplayer workplace software. Mm -hmm. So it's like we were trying to accomplish with the game, highly generative, collaborative, um, big open world where anyone can communicate with anyone else. And what was the specific problem that you were trying to solve when you set up Slack? Well, that's the interesting thing. I think the reason that we had so much momentum is we weren't trying to solve any problem. We had a company of about 45 people and fairly cross-disciplinary. So there's some strong engineering efforts, kind of back-end stuff. And then because it's a game company, there's also artists and animators and illustrators. Of course, there's business operations and there's customer support. And we had a system for internal communication, which is based on an ancient internet protocol called IRC that actually dates all the way back to the late 1980s. And IRC is kind of the prototype for Slack, but we, over the course of several years, built feature after feature in a very subconscious way, spending the minimum number of minutes sanding off the edges of whatever our most irritating problem with internal communication was or taking advantage of the most obvious opportunities. And after three years or so, we ended up with a great prototype. How did you scale a business like that? Because clearly there are massive kind of network effects from this. So how do you go from nothing to 8 million daily users? It is challenging. So when we first started, we had eight people and we kind of naively thought, well, this is a fantastic tool for us and it would be great for other teams of about eight people. And we estimated the total market if we were to achieve the fullest success to be a million people, a couple million people, maybe we could get to $100 million in revenue. And that happened 18 months after we launched. So it had a much wider array of applications than we initially thought. And we went from eight people to 30 people to 150 to 500 to now well over a thousand. And I think we've been playing catch up a lot. And last year we launched um, Slack in French, German, Spanish, and Japanese. And we've seen enormous growth. I just got back from Tokyo last week in all of those markets. But we've also seen it used in places where we never thought it would be used. So Slack is used by the Norwegian Department of Labor and Welfare and the Hartford, Connecticut Police Department and in NGOs and in academic research labs, but also in farms and dental offices and restaurants, along with two-thirds of the Fortune 100. And do different cultures and professions learn to use Slack in different ways? Absolutely. Even within a culture, within a country, within a city, within an industry, in London's tech scene, we see a bewildering variety of uses. And that's good in the sense that Slack is very flexible, can accommodate different styles, and also a challenge for us in that people have, in many cases, years or sometimes decades worth of experience in the hidden etiquette of female and have these implicit understandings which are widely shared, which they don't have with Slack. And so they have to discover how to... So give us some things. examples. How do people use it differently? Well, I mean, the, on one axis is just good or healthy usage versus less good usage. In Slack, there's a feature that people will recognize from Facebook where you can mention someone's name that tags them and that causes a notification. And the intention there is when you believe something requires someone's attention, you should mention them and then they'll receive a notification. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And when there's a healthy, disciplined culture of the usage of this, the upshot is when there isn't a notification, you can just trust that you don't need to read it. Because, and this might sound exaggerated, but it's literally true. In a large organization, you might have access to a thousand times more information than you would in an email using culture. Because email is very partial and very, very fragmented. But you can't read a thousand times more messages. And so you have to be very selective with where you pay attention. So when that usage doesn't evolve naturally, and we haven't done as good of a job as I, as I hope to do in the long run in educating people about you know, the best practices, it can be very challenging for people because suddenly there's so much activity and they don't know what they should read and what they have to keep up with and uh, can just be overwhelming. But in addition to that, there's also really interesting uses that we didn't anticipate. And I'll give you just one quick example. The American software company Intuit, which does tax preparation software, and as you probably know, America has a bizarre system built through extensive lobbying to make it as hard as possible for people to file their taxes. Intuit swells from I think, about 12,000 full-time employees to 15 or 16,000 during tax season because of all the extra support needs. And they manage all of that through and this will sound preposterous unless you're a Slack user, through Slack channels and the use of emoji reactions. So that people put emoji reactions onto a message and that causes a programmatic trigger to evaluate the performance of different customer support representatives. And that's certainly not something we anticipated when Slack got started. And the most common is the screaming face emoji. The screaming face, well, I'll make that a little bit more concrete. We use it as well now because we've evolved this in legal approval. So there's a channel in Slack which has a whole bunch of lawyers and has a whole bunch of other non-lawyers inside the company. And anytime someone has a contract, either from a customer or from a vendor, they can drop the contract into this channel and one of the lawyers will put the eyeball emoji on it, which means I'm going to look at this. But the value of that is everyone else, all the other lawyers now know that this person is going to look at it. And when they're done, they put the green check mark. So now you have this very lightweight, flexible system of record for contract approvals inside the company, which is much more effective than someone lobbying an email over. Now, when I came to visit you in San Francisco a couple of years ago, I then went on to another big company, which will remain nameless, but they're very big in kind of ride sharing at the company. <laughs> And I asked them if they use Slack, and they said they did for very small teams within their company and found it very useful, but they didn't use it at a kind of company-wide level because it was not scalable. Is that a common problem? Is there an optimal maximum number of people who can use Slack channels at any one time? No, I think that was very early on. And at this point, I believe I know the company that you're talking about. At our largest customer, so IBM is our single largest customer, there's over 150,000 people using Slack. And they use what is called our enterprise grid product. So Slack was designed for workspaces, but we get a large enough organization, you don't want 150,000 people all in the same confined space because that will get very intense and very fast moving. But they have thousands and thousands, I think at this point, close to 9,000 different workspaces inside of IBM's grid instance. Some of them have thousands of people. Some of them are dozens or low hundreds. And you can create enough structure to mirror the structure of the organization that's using it. But no, we have a large number of customers that are 5,000, 10,000, several tens of thousands of people all using Slack together. We use Slack at the Financial Times, mm -hmm. but our journalists also use email, WhatsApp, Signal, Telegram, Twitter. Uh, there is a whole proliferation of different communication tools. How much of a problem is that? Do you think one platform is eventually going to dominate? I definitely do not. And I struggle to find the right analogy to something that was before the electronic era, like something like 
it's confusing and frustrating that the post comes in so many different sizes of envelopes. And if only we could find one envelope size, then things would be much better. I know that's probably not a great characterization, but if you think about the role that, say, Snapchat plays in the life of teens or that Signal plays for Kurdish dissidents in Turkey or something like that, or that Facebook Messenger plays for the typical American or WhatsApp in India or Brazil, they're all just so completely different. And the parent application is the physical device, you know, that's your phone, the address book in your phone off which all of these applications ladder themselves. And... The unique capabilities of each system, each platform, and the different modes of communication are of value to people. Otherwise, we wouldn't have seen this proliferation and everyone would have just stopped email because we already did have a universal platform. But is there a great advantage in making them more interoperable than they are at the moment? You can more easily switch between one and the other. Yeah, I mean, I think that we're starting to see a little bit of that at the level of the operating system. So the latest versions of iOS have much more sophisticated notification management, same thing in Android. And it's at that layer, the notification management for the whole phone that you see being sewn together. But if you're asking, should people be able to send a message from Snapchat and have it show up in WhatsApp or something like that, then I think no. Mm -hmm. It's not something that we can expect. Tell us about shared channels, which you launched relatively recently. Yeah, shared channels have been in beta for about a year, and Slack was designed for internal communication. Email, in contrast, there's a universal namespace, so you can expect any adult in a developed country to have an email address, and anyone can just reach anyone else. For Slack, you have to be provisioned, and there's a bunch of security features, and those can get pretty sophisticated, but the general idea is you're either on the inside, and you can send a message to people, or you're not. There are many companies that have long-lived relationships with one another. You can think of the auto companies and the parts makers. You can think of global construction and global engineering firms, or things like auditors, KPMG, and we deal with them year in, year out. And we have long-lived relationships with outside law firms and creative agencies and commercial real estate agents. And for those kinds of relationships, when both parties are Slack users, you can create a shared channel. Administrators on both sides give approval, and then each side controls access to that. There are over 10,000 organizations already using shared channels, and some of those are professional services firms. There's a company that does consulting for American and European firms who have manufacturing operations in China, so it kind of smooth out that process for them. And they have dozens and dozens of different customers who are all Slack users as well, and all that activity happens in the shared channel. So it's something that we're excited about for the long run. So I, John at the Financial Times can communicate via Slack with Stuart at Slack. Yeah. So, I mean, that example, we might not have frequent enough communication or the administrators of the Slack instance and the Financial Times instance might not agree to create a shared channel. And that is the difference. So like an email, anyone can, I mean, and anyone does email me. I get hundreds and hundreds a day from people all around the world, mostly trying to sell me something. And, um, and but that you don't doesn't, use email anymore. Oh, I use email for 90 minutes or two hours a day every day because I have a lot of communication outside. But it's actually, it's quite nice and useful that there's a real bifurcation. So external communication happens in email, internal communication happens in Slack. At your last fundraise in August, you took in about $427 million valuing Slack at around $7 billion. Mm-hmm. Um, there has been a trend for companies to stay private for longer because of the ready access of capital. Yeah. What's your thinking on this? When are you going to IPO? We have no specific timeline, but we've been in a multi-year process of getting ready. And ultimately, the advantage of being public and our desire for it is just driven by liquidity. And so 
We would like there to be a free and open public market for equity securities in the company, which is about the most boring outcome. I think it would also be good for us, for our customers to be able to inspect our financials, to have that kind of, that degree of transparency. But because the private markets have been so kind and, and capital has been so cheap, there hasn't been a strong drive for us to find a moment because we're unlikely to need to raise money from the public markets. And SoftBank, their vision fund is providing massive liquidity in this market and you have taken money from them, for example. So are they yeah. a mechanism for helping companies like you stay private for longer and build I think, over a longer time? Well, I mean, all of the capital that flows in makes a difference there. I mean, they do provide liquidity in some cases because they're buying shares from existing investors. Few of our existing investors are willing to sell their shares, so it doesn't provide liquidity in that way. And I think it, that's not going to make much of a difference for us with respect to the long-term ambition of being public. I mean, the tech markets at the moment, and talking about capital markets, are suffering quite a big battering. Do you think we've seen peak tech well, no, because we're on a long trajectory from the development of written language through irrigation and industrialization and electricity to computers and internet that we will presumably continue to see for a couple hundred thousand years or hundreds of millions of years. But I don't think that's what you're asking. Is there a short-term market correction? That we see? Yeah, people, expectations are funny to me because sometimes you look at these companies and it's, you know, brutal bloodbath and headlines, um, companies off 20%, so it's back to where it was almost two months ago. The run-up in the last 18 months has been so dramatic and so pronounced that even the big retreats that we're seeing are literally adjustments that take us back, you know, some cases weeks, some cases months, and in the worst case, like six months. It has been overheated for a while. I am old enough and finally wise enough to never try to time the market, so I, I can't say. But I, no, I think that we'll see, if anything, just more and more because you look at, oh, I don't know, is Airbnb a technology company or a hospitality company? Is PayPal a technology company or a financial services company? I think over the next decade or two, that distinction will be erased, other than companies that you know manufacture computing equipment or, like us, produce software. We won't really make as much of a distinction between a tech company and a non-tech company. But that market turbulence is likely to make your IPO later rather than sooner. Well, I mean, to be honest, my biggest fear as a CEO about going public was to come out in too frothy of a market. And the literal worst case would be to IPO at the absolute peak and then spend years digging out of that hole because the impact on employees that I've seen at other companies, the psychology is such that whatever the 52-week high is, is the true price. And anything less than that is the company's screwed up. And so I've seen companies IPO in really fantastic, and using air quotes around the word fantastic, markets, and then suffer through years of disillusioned and disappointed employees whose option prices are underwater or you know, who they have the impression that the company is failing despite the fact that it was an enormous success. The company said last year that its annual recurring revenues were about $200 million and growing yeah. about 100% a year. What are the latest figures? We're not releasing them anymore, revenue figures, but that trajectory is um, approximately the same. And maybe that's all I have to say about it. Yeah. Are you making profits yet? No. And because of the nature of the business, and this is a distinction that might end up just confusing people, but the way the SaaS business works is there's a huge amount of deferred revenue because it's subscription revenue. So people are often cash flow positive long before they're profitable. I'm not sure, but I think that Salesforce, despite its massive cash flow positive position, still isn't technically profitable in the accounting sense. But I don't want people to get confused by that because typically when people say profits, they mean you take in more cash than you put out. And we're much closer to that point. Okay. I saw an interview where you said this, profit is a great diagnostic for the health of a business, but not for the purpose of the business. What is the purpose of Slack? 
It's a great question. And just to maybe give a little bit more color to that, I'm now of an age when I need to get my cholesterol and blood pressure checked periodically. I would like to have certain figures there. I wouldn't say that that's the purpose of my life. What is the purpose of my life? That's a much more difficult and subtle question. And the same thing is true of the company. But there's a bunch of things. No one starts a restaurant because they want to get rich unless they're very, very stupid. Instead, they start a restaurant because they like the idea of hospitality, of serving people. They feel like they have a particular idea that they would like to you know, have the market validate. The same thing is true of us. You know, We have a product. We have an ambition for the world. That we create an identity, and we hope people care about that, both internally as employees and customers. And the underlying purpose can be as hard to articulate for a company as it is for an individual human being. But the financial performance is just one check on how well you're accomplishing that. Final three quickfire questions. All right. Which is the most overrated or underrated technology? Oh, um, well, I'm an enormous skeptic about the possibility of an artificial general intelligence. So I would say the Elon Musk and other fears about evil AI taking over the world are completely overblown. Need Murray this century. No. What is the greatest threat to technology? Well, I mean, this is true today and it's true historically. It's our inability to cope with the short-term ramifications of them while we kind of figure things out. You know, there's a time when the Thames would regularly catch on fire because of the Industrial Revolution and it took us literally decades to sort that out. And I think we're dealing with the political, social, cultural implications of having this massive interconnected Facebook, Tinder, Snapchat world. And same thing, it'll probably take us a shorter time, maybe not decades, but certainly years to sort out. And what book would you recommend to our listeners to read, which is not a technological book really to understand how our world is developing at the moment? Oh, this. So I, I recommend this with mixed feelings because I think the content is fantastic. It is a very difficult and very dry read, but Smeal's Energy and Civilization. This is Vaslav Smeal. Yeah. Energy and Civilization, a history. So it's looking at the development of civilization through the lens of our use of energy all the way back to draft animals and human labor up to electrification of the world. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Stuart. Thank you very much. Well, I hope that's inspired you to contribute to our informal survey. If you'd like to take part in the debate, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week. In the meantime, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, take a look at our subscriber offers at ft.com forward slash offer. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.